0: Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Father Anthony Ruff. Father Anthony is a Benedictine monk of St. John's Abbey who teaches liturgy and liturgical music at St. John's University and School of Theology and Seminary in Collegeville, Minnesota. I wanted to speak to Father Anthony about the bombshell news out of the Vatican a few weeks ago. I figured you've heard about it. Pope Francis has restricted the traditional Latin mass in the Catholic Church. And this has become a big deal. People want to talk about it. What does this mean for the church? And I thought speaking with Father Anthony and his background and expertise would make for good conversation. So for you, let's talk about some basic context. On July 16th, 2021, which was the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel by the way, Pope Francis issued a motu proprio which is a decree by his own initiative. In it, Francis placed restrictions on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, which is the Mass celebrated in the Catholic Church prior to the reforms implemented after the Second Vatican Council. Now, way back in 2007, Pope Benedict XVI made accommodations for Catholics who wanted to celebrate this pre-Vatican II Mass. Whereas what Francis's decree does now is it not only overrides, it reverses those accommodations that Pope Benedict XVI made. So as of July 16, 2021, Catholics who want to celebrate the pre-Vatican II Mass need explicit permission from their bishop. And this this is going to hit pretty big. And the Mass celebrated according to the reforms of Vatican II, which is the Mass most Catholics celebrate around the world in the Roman Rite. Is once again the standard mass in the Catholic Church. Now, for me, you know, as I was thinking about this news, and I've seen a lot of divisiveness around the extraordinary form, the kind of attitudes that put what we could only call maybe liturgy wars, that the extraordinary form is you know like are you really even going to church if it's not the extraordinary form <laughs> you know is that really even mass if it's not the extraordinary form and i struggle with how does this create unity in the church and and then i also have so many friends that do go to extraordinary form who are good people who love that style of worship I've heard of stories of people saying it brought them back into the church. So how do we deal with this in a way that doesn't bring further division, but instead brings unity? So we'll talk about that and much more with Father Anthony Ruff. As you know, I'm doing this podcast with America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening around the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. For example, we published a lot of different articles on the Pope's decision to restrict the traditional Latin Mass, like about how some people find real comfort in that Mass and how this transition is painful. And we have articles on how very real divisions emerged within the Catholic Church around the Latin Mass and how there is underlying rejection of the broader reforms of Vatican II. And if you're just wondering, what is the Latin Mass? We have explainers that give you that history and the main developments that led to Pope Francis's decision. And this is really unique stuff. And you get all of that here at americamagazine.org. And the best way to access it and to support my podcast is to get a digital subscription to America. So go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Father Anthony Ruff is up next. My guest today is Father Anthony Ruff. He is a Benedictine monk of St. John's Abbey, He teaches liturgy and liturgical music at St. John's University and School of Theology and Seminary in Collegeville, Minnesota. He plays the organ, and he directs Gregorian chant in his monastery. He's the founder of the National Catholic Youth Choir, and he blogs at Pray Tell. And I should also note that St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota, where Father Anthony is a monk, was one of the protagonists of the liturgical movement leading up to Vatican II. And so that's why I really wanted to speak with you today. Uh, is your background, your understanding of all this and about this bombshell news that the Holy Father, Pope Francis, has restricted to traditional Latin mass. I mean, who better to talk to than you? And I have to ask this also because I cannot sing. Is there a way for somebody who's tone deaf to really do Gregorian chant? I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. So what it whatever been one the things that I question. was like. Oh, Gloria, great to be with you. What can I say?
1: All, all are welcome. All right. You know, we, in my monastery, we, we do a little bit of Latin chant where the whole congregation, the lay people join in. On So what can welcome. I say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you can sing fine. Oh, you're um, so generous. Father. You know, they always say, if God gave you a lousy voice, give it right back.
0: Amen, and I do. Sorry everybody else has to listen to
1: it, though. (laughs) No, no, no. So I think, you know, anyone can sing Latin chant, and I hope the whole church is doing that. And then, of course, those who have the talents, come to me, and we'll be a choir, and we'll do parts of the liturgy for you that we hope help everyone
2: else to pray.
0: (laughs) Great. I was told that, you know, people would not be allowed in religious communities that did chant if they couldn't. If they were unable to hit the tune. Sure not the case
1: in my community. <laughs> with <laughs> all due respect to my brothers. <laughs> right. actually, we, you know, <laughs> we have a lot of lot of really great singers here in the monastery. It tends to attract, but yeah, I have heard of that too. But I think most places are like uh, Saint John's where we we accept everyone who has a vocation.
0: So we're talking about this news out of the Vatican and Pope Francis restricting what some people call the traditional Latin Mass. I think we need to get some context. Can we get this context and clarify the terminology here? What is the traditional Latin Mass or the pre-Vatican II Mass?
1: Well, I suppose there's the precise meaning, and then there's the meaning in the streets and how people use them in the real world. I think pre-Vatican II Mass is pretty clear. That's according to the 1962 Missal. Then Mm -hmm. the Second Vatican Council actually decided that that liturgy needed to be reformed and needed to be replaced. And Vatican II intended that there would be one form of the Roman Rite only, and it would be the Reformed Rite. And they were pretty strict about that. Pope Paul VI only granted a rare exception In the case of an older priest who couldn't make the change, that's understandable, but it had to be a liturgy Mm -hmm. not in public. So after Vatican II, we eventually had the Missal of 1970, and that was all done, in my view, according to Vatican II. I don't think it's fair to say it somehow betrayed or violated Vatican II. It's what the Church intended. And this liturgy was issued in Latin, like everything from Rome is. So now we can celebrate the Reformed liturgy in Latin or in any approved vernacular. And of course, most of us, most of the time, celebrate entirely in vernacular, although in my monastery, we also keep some Latin chant within the Reformed liturgy. And I think Vatican II wanted some of that as well.
0: I know we have listeners who are not Catholic, so they wouldn't be familiar maybe with some of the terms that we use, vernacular. They're like, what do you mean vernacular? What are you talking about? And we're just saying in the local language, right? When we say the mass can be said yeah. in the vernacular here, and that people do actually say mass in Latin. And I recall, you know, I'm a convert, I converted at age 12, so I don't have a history of people in my family who are Catholic they could tell me what it was like for Vatican II or pre-Vatican II, right? But from other Catholics I've met who are older who did go to the pre-Vatican II Mass, they said they had no idea what was happening during Mass, and they'd often pray a rosary or whatnot. And I understood that that was one of the reasons for the reform, as they wanted more participation and active, you know, attention and pious devotion during the Mass from the people, and so that was part of the reason for. The reforms. Am I getting my history right here, Father? You're right on
1: track, Gloria. That sounds exactly right. You know what basically happened over the course of the centuries? Mm -hmm. And I promise not to get stuck in too much history here. But in brief, the Mass stayed in Latin when people no longer spoke Latin. Mm -hmm. And gradually, gradually, with each passing century, the laity got more and more separated from it so that it became something, you know, very beautiful, beautiful ceremonial, beautiful music, mm-hmm. a dignity, a grandeur, a sacred sense, but it was something that the priest did. And the lay people in the Middle Ages, they would not have known what was in the Eucharistic prayer, for example. They had never heard a Eucharistic prayer in their life in their own language. That's hard to imagine, mm-hmm. but we have to admit, for most of church history, Catholic people did not ever hear the collect of the Mass or the Eucharistic prayer, the preface, the Lamb of God, any of that in their own language. Now, they prayed. They were impressed by what happened. They found God. Some people, some of the time, knew more or less what was happening, but most didn't. Mm. Before Vatican II, they made efforts to try to involve people in the Mass that was done by the priest alone in Latin. So, they started giving people translations. So, open your book, and we'll tell you what pages to put your ribbons in. Try to follow what the priest is doing. Try to get yourself on the right page. And while he does it in Latin, you can read it in English or whatever language you follow. Mm-hmm. So, I would say, to be fair, before Vatican II, there were Catholics who were trying to follow along and read the translation. But there were also a lot of them, I think, didn't. They were still saying the rosary or just praying on their own. And I think the insight was, so we have a thousand years of people not understanding it at all. Right. We have, you know, like about five minutes where people had a translation. Now, some of the translations, you know, go back to the 1920s, really took off, I think, in the 40s and 1950s in most places. We realized that, very small historical period before Vatican II, when people tried to read along with the translation, right doesn't really work. We have to decide here. Either we do it the way we've done it the last thousand years, and that's okay. Or if we really want people not just to understand what's going on, not just to follow what's going on, but if we want people to actually be the body of Christ, be the community that celebrates this isn't working and it can't work. So lots of good efforts before Vatican II, but I think it was inevitable that a breakthrough had to happen.
0: So in the last 50 years, you know, has the old mass continued in places? And I hate to do these two for questions, but since you're thinking about it as I asked this, is this strictly an American thing?
1: Yeah, I can give you my impressions based on what I read online. Mm -hmm. After Vatican II, the Pope really followed Vatican II in saying the old mass is now done, it's now replaced. But there were groups that didn't accept it from the beginning. And my impression is that these groups were really tiny. They were the fringe and the bishops were unanimous in saying As Catholics, we have to follow Vatican II. But then something happened as these groups started to grow, and John Paul II in 1984, then more strongly in 1988, said, if these groups want to be a part of the Catholic Church and want to be under the Pope, let's allow some exceptions let's give them a certificate. Mm -hmm. It's called an indult, saying that they can celebrate the pre-Vatican II liturgy. And that was very controversial. There were bishops and other people who said, you can't do that. That's not what Vatican II intended. (laughs) But he wanted to reach out and be tolerant.
0: But there's something very interesting, though, about that point. Doesn't that mean, then, that the celebration of that particular mass was a concession. I think you've written somewhere more so than saying that they have a right to celebrate it, because I've often heard that they have a right, and you can't do this and that. But from what I'm understanding, you're saying here, it wasn't a right that they can have it, and it was a concession that John Paul II was granting.
1: That's my impression, that it was a concession.
0: Okay. However,
1: Pope Benedict issued Summorum Pontificum in 2007 And here, I think the tension with Vatican II increases because he did speak of it as, in effect, saying they do have a right to it. Okay. Those groups that request it, the priest must celebrate the pre-Vatican II rite for them. The bishop must find a way to provide it for all those who want it.
0: So now, though, that, to me, if people understand or believe that they do have this right, I mean, so Pope Francis's letter restricting the traditional pre-Vatican II Mass had to be a bombshell. So what you know, what was your reaction to this news, to this to the Holy Father doing this?
1: Great question, Gloria. I had two reactions. First off, shock. It was stronger than I expected. I did not ever imagine that Pope Francis would go back that strongly to what Vatican II said and uphold it. And we can say more about the contents mm-hmm. of it and what the actual prescriptions are later if you want. But that was my first reaction, yeah. shock and surprise. My second reaction, honestly, was concern for for the good people who are affected by it. I sensed immediately that there would be a lot of hurt and anger and sadness and desperation. And my thought is one of, of real compassion, and I don't want to be condescending about that. But in a sense, we can't blame these people. They were misled. In my view, the authorities of the church let them believe that there was something okay and something good about the pre-Vatican II rites, and gave them the impression that there would be a whole reform movement where this right would really take off and maybe Vatican II would be modified or rolled back or even done away with. Whoa. But, yeah, and I, I also want to be careful here. You know, there's the bloggers, and we say all kinds of things. And then there's the people in the <laughs> views. You know, so yeah. I don't want to make any accusations that everyone going to the pre-Vatican II mass hates Vatican II or hates the Pope or anything like that. Right. There are bloggers who to varying degrees have really moved more and more into a position of pre-Vatican II Mass is superior. The one after Vatican II, it's valid. It's still a valid consecration, but it's really inferior and should not have happened. Mm. So you do have strong opinions, and we could talk about a lot of other blog sites. We don't need to. Strong opinions that sometimes are pretty divisive and polemical. As to what the people in the pews are thinking, I I don't want to judge that.
0: You know, that is such a strange sounding thing to me to say a mass is superior when our Lord is present in both, right? When our Lord, I mean, the whole purpose is for us to worship God. And it's just so peculiar sounding to me to hear that there would be priests who would say... Because to me, when when you say something is superior, it means the other thing is inferior. And I just can't fathom that when talking about the Holy Mass where our Lord is present. It just, to me, it's, it's very strange sounding to my ears. And then it makes me wonder then, what does that develop in a person that has those thoughts about the Holy Mass? What does it do to their... Reverence at Mass? You know, if they think they're at an inferior Mass, what does it do to cultivate their love for the Lord in that particular Mass that they consider inferior? And it's just very strange, very strange language to me. And I, I don't understand how that's good for the church. And then how an individual priest can think and know better than the council of all those bishops and the Holy Father. And so there's something very out of order to me as a Catholic in understanding, I guess, authority and obedience. And um, that just, I, I can't follow that line of thinking, Father.
1: Boy, it's a very difficult question because we don't want to be judgmental in speaking for God and condemning others. But at the same time, you know, We don't want to be relativists that say everything is equally good and we can't make any judgments or we can't analyze things, because this is actually something I struggle with because I don't want to judge the people involved, and I don't want to judge Pope Benedict or say unfair things about him, but I do as a theologian want to say that I think some of what Pope Benedict did in my analysis and doing my best to try to do a theological evaluation, some of what Pope Benedict did was contrary to the Second Vatican Council. Mm. And where it really gets difficult for me, I mean, I think, you know, when Pope Benedict and Pope Francis contradict each other, and they pretty clearly do here, if you compare, you know, column by column Sumorum Pontificum of Pope Benedict, and Traditionis Custodes of Pope Francis. When they contradict each other, both could be true, or it could be that one is more true than the other. So I think it's really a challenge for us to talk about why the Church wanted the Vatican II reforms, Mm
2: -hmm. why
1: the Church understands the 1970 Missal after Vatican II in a sense to be superior, more faithful to the will of the Lord as understood by the Second Vatican Council, but not saying everything before it was bad or not saying that the people were doing anything wrong. How do we say that's where the Church was at that time? The Lord was still able to work through the old rite, lots of graces, lots of great saints, lots of valiant Catholic Christian life. And And yet, the Second Vatican Council said, the form of this Mass, where it's really more clerical than congregational mm-hmm. that form is not adequate we're not saying that the people were inadequate or unchristian but we're saying that that form does not reflect the nature of the true church, which is how they worded it. So somehow, it, you see the struggle here. Yeah. How can we talk about how the Vatican II form in some sense is superior? We think it's more faithful to what the church is about without being judgmental unfairly of people or of church authorities for the last thousand years.
0: So I know some people are saying- what do you mean they're contradicting each other, especially since Pope Benedict did things contrary to Vatican II? Wasn't he there at Vatican II? Didn't he participate?
1: I think we will be spending a long time <laughs> unpacking the very rich thought of Pope Benedict. Mm. He's a very complicated figure. Misunderstood, I think, by, you know, people like me who support Vatican II and, and misunderstood by people who want the old mass. Mm. He's a very profound thinker who has an excellent grasp of what God revealed in Christ and what it means for the life of the church. I find his writings on the profundity of the Eucharist or all the sacraments spiritually very rich, but I find that something developed in him where he thought not so much that the New Liturgy of 1970 is wrong. He was enough of a theologian to accept all of it and affirm all of it, but he felt that the disruption of going from one to the other was not good for us, and he thought there was something wrong about the process, and he thought something was lost there. And so it led him to idiosyncratic Positions about how even though Vatican II didn't say to implement Vatican II, we have to sort of contradict Vatican II to put the old liturgy back into place so that it can rebalance and maybe something new will come out of it and maybe within generations we'll actually arrive at a better, deeper understanding of Vatican II. As I say, it's a complicated position that I don't claim to understand entirely. And I'm not sure all of it holds up because it is so idiosyncratic. But there are a lot of spiritual treasures all the way through in his writings that has to be said.
0: We'll be back in a minute. So I guess what I'm sitting here thinking about and maybe is struggling a bit with is on the one hand, as I read what Pope Benedict put out and what I'm reading, what the Holy Father put out is all of these things are done with an idea of ecclesial unity, right? And yet from the time of when Benedict issued his letter to when Pope Francis issued his, there was a tremendous change. I mean, I would say in in the United States, the rise of social media, I think, was something Benedict could not foresee. Yeah, I am
1: worried about unity in the Church. Pope Francis felt he had to intervene because of some of the things you mentioned, Gloria, that Pope Benedict hadn't foreseen. If you go to Twitter, you find out, of course, it's gotten pretty bloody out there, these fringe people attacking the Pope and attacking the new Mass and all of that. So it wasn't working to have a peaceful coexistence. But some people who know more about it than I do, because I'm not involved in the pre-Vatican II Mass scene, but they say there are parishes where it was a peaceful coexistence and it was working. So it's hard to know what the mix is. But I think what's really hard in all of this is how are we going to have a peaceful transition where the entire Roman Rite does accept the Vatican II Mass? And this is a case where Pope Francis, I think, does, well, if not contradict, he certainly goes in a different direction than Pope Benedict. He speaks of the entire Church returning to the 1970 Mass. He really does speak of phasing out pre-Vatican II Mass. And here I have to say, I don't envy bishops Mm -hmm. who have to guide this. I think all of us have to think long and hard about how to do that i think we would have to start with compassion and respect for the people involved as i said i think you know through no fault of their own i think they were misled i think progress might have to be very slow there might have to be i don't know i'm just brainstorming here maybe there will have to be odd concessions for a generation or two to allow things that are not ideal Uh, or maybe not even liturgically according to Vatican II. But at the same time, how would the bishops accept Pope Francis's motu proprio so that they really are moving toward the phasing out of the old mass? Mm -hmm. Because not all of the bishops agree with that. And a lot of the bishops say, even if I do agree with that in theory, you're just adding one more hassle to an already difficult life. So I would say the way forward is not clear. And I don't claim to have answers on how it will work or how it will develop or, you know, dare we say it, what the next hope will do with all of this. But I don't think it's a matter of just ordering everyone to go to the Vatican to mass. I think there are people's feelings that we have to respect, and we all have to really work on how do we make the right kind of progress toward Pope Francis's understanding of Vatican II.
0: Well, I can tell you one thing that I think was a red flag for me, that I had no knowledge of privacy. I was watching a YouTube interview between two Catholic men, laymen, and the interviewer, somehow the the person that was being interviewed mentioned, you know, that when he travels, you know, he he kind of had a dismissive attitude that if there wasn't an extraordinary form of mass, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and gave the impression, at least to me, that he's like, you know, why even bother going? And I thought, what? <laughs> you know, this is precisely the wrong attitude and this shouldn't be something that should even be fostered by having an extraordinary form mass that you then, if it's not available, just don't even go when you're traveling on a Sunday and there's no extraordinary form nearby, you just don't go. Or, you know, it just was very shocking to me because, again, I'm like, the mass has Jesus present. This is where we go to receive him and to say, well, I'm not going to go because he's not dressed in the appropriate liturgical type that I like, to me, missed. The whole point of why we go to mass on Sunday, and so to me, that was a very red flag of an attitude that I guess could be could well obviously for this guy was developed in him by participating in extraordinary form and being an extraordinary form community, but he was always uh, referring back to Trent you know, or the Catechism of Trent or all of these things. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? You know, we have a catechism that we use now and how could this possibly be happening? And is this an American thing? And is this specifically a white American thing? Because I didn't see that in Black Catholic communities. I didn't see that kind of development or attitude in Black Catholic communities. So I was wondering how much of this is a specifically white American thing, where stuff has gone sideways.
1: Yeah, that would be a red flag for me also, if a young man says, I only go to mass if it's the pre-Vatican II. So, I, I, you know, I would challenge that. At the same time, I would certainly respect strong feelings here. I know what it's like to be attached to things. You know, I love being a monk and I like the habit. I like the way we do things here. And the externals, you know, matter to me maybe too much some of the time, but they really do express and embody a whole life decision. So at a certain level, I think I can actually... Understand and relate to a person who would say that, and I think we have to remind ourselves over and over: people do have strong feelings about this, and that's a normal thing. To your question of racial diversity, I want to be careful because I don't know, and you know, there are African Americans who like pre-Vatican II mass oh, yeah. somewhere, someplace. I'm oh, sure. Oh, I know some, and I'm sure there are communities that are racially diverse. At the same time, I went to a pre-Vatican II Mass this past Sunday. I was on the road for other reasons, away from the monastery, helping my mother, who's moving into memory care. So I thought, well, since I have to leave early anyway on Sunday morning, it's the day my siblings would be there, I'm going to seek out such a Mass. And this was in a very racially diverse neighborhood that has changed dramatically. Formerly European ethnic with another church every block or two for the Italians and the Polish, and none of that's the case anymore. When I went into the church, it did strike me that it was a hundred percent white. And obviously people driving in from a whole, you know, radius, and I don't know how far they drive to get to their mass. Mm -hmm. And I do have to tell you that a good friend of mine who's a Mennonite has read Pray Tell blog that I run where we talk about the liturgy wars. Yes. Isn't that an awful term? Yeah. You wouldn't think liturgy and war would belong together. And he said, what I observe is you have the same thing that we have. We have converts to the Mennonite church who are very enamored by the whole Amish tradition. And he said, you know, we speak of the angry young white men. And that raised the whole racial, ethnic question for me, because it does seem to be that there's an overrepresentation of young or white or male people pushing the pre-Vatican II mass. So we can name that, but I don't have the data. Right. And I don't want to say it's only that. I don't want to deny some diversity in some places. Right.
0: Oh, I know of a monsignor that's African-American, that's a big proponent of the pre-Vatican II mass. But as far as African American communities, parishes, I you know, if there were the celebration of the extraordinary form there, just given our history in the church in the United States, I don't see, I mean, we didn't leave, you know, when we were told we had to wait, <laughs> you know, and, and receive communion after all the white people. We didn't leave when Jim Crow was inside the church. I just don't see us leaving you know, from (laughs) reforms to the liturgy. You know, I just, I I guess, to me, just seeing this with uh, the Holy Father, I just wouldn't see this having the same kind of psychological, emotional impact on Black Catholics as that I'm understanding that it's having on other people in the church. But anyhow, let's talk, what about the argument against this move that Francis made? You know, people saying that Francis seems to be imposing uniformity While at the same time, he talks a lot about diversity and openness in the church. But people see that here he's suppressing one community. So what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it because it is an authoritarian top-down move saying this is what's going to happen for the sake of unity. Mm -hmm. But as I read it, he's not saying immediately, and he's not saying ignore these people. He's saying meet these people where they're at and bring them along. Mm -hmm. He provides for the pre-Vatican II Mass to continue as long as you get permission from your bishop as long as you're no longer promoting it or starting parishes for it. So it is authoritarian, I guess. But, you know, it's because he believes it's the will of the Lord and of Vatican II. And he does have some sensitivity about it. And to that whole question of diversity, my understanding is that Vatican II intended that the old right would be discontinued and replaced by a new right, But, and this is where it gets complicated, there's diversity and then there's diversity. The new right would have a flexibility so that maybe an African-American community might do it differently than an Irish-American community. Maybe in some countries they'd use different colors for the seasons. I'm told that, you know, white and red have a different meaning in Asia than they did in in medieval Mm -hmm. Europe. Maybe in some places, you know, there would be a different kind of opening rite that reflects how people greet each other and gather in Zaire Mm -hmm. or the Congolese rite. So they said there's actually going to be much more diversity in bringing in all of the talents of all of the local cultures of the church. But there's going to be a unity in that, in every case, It's a Vatican II rite that has a Eucharistic prayer out loud, the people singing and participating, the people doing a wide variety of ministries. So there's going to be a whole set of commonalities Mm -hmm. within this rich cultural diversity. And the view that I think comes from Vatican II is that that kind of diversity is good. It's regional, it's cultural, it's racial, Mm -hmm. and all of the rest. But it doesn't provide for the kind of diversity of people who want to do the pre-Vatican II Mass that doesn't have the basic presuppositions in
2: place.
0: So, okay. There has to be something that can be done to help people who maybe their bishop is like, look, no, no pre-Vatican II Mass at all. Come you gotta go to what what's already here. I mean, I guess what I haven't heard much of is the celebration of the Vatican II Mass in Latin? I mean, what kind of things can be done to help people transition or to feel comfortable? Or, you know, is that going to be too much to do something like that? I mean, I think we can. I know we can say it in Latin. Well, not me, but the priest, you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. These are the things we'll have to talk about here. And let me say this, you know, I'm sounding more absolutist than than I am. So at a theological level I can say Vatican too absolutely intended to replace the old rape right with the new one. But when I think of we can't undo the history of the last twenty five years. When I look at the people involved, I'm just, I'm kind of a softy and all of my principles collapse. And I say, okay, we're not going to prohibit it. Not now. Maybe not even in the next 25 years. You know, sometimes you just have to keep the peace and say, <laughs> you know, even after Vatican II, so there's one place where people do the old mass. Let's just have one place. And they all understand it's a concession. Maybe in God's designs, we can live with the contradiction. So I think there may be a place
0: but, for that. But didn't the Holy Father say something about new priests, like younger priests, priests ordained after July 16th, 2021? Didn't he have some restrictions on their celebration of the pre-Vatican II mass? What what does he say there? He says any
1: newly ordained priest from July 16th on cannot simply get permission from the bishop. The bishop can give permission for all of the priests already ordained, but the bishop can't give permission to any newly ordained priests without consulting with Rome. So will Rome in every case say? Yes, go ahead, trusting the local bishop. Or will Rome say, no, not ever again. Mm. So within 50 years, we will have uh, purged. That That we don't know. And he says that the pre-Vatican II Mass is no longer the authentic theology, the orandi of the Roman Rite. So he said the norm really is the post-Vatican II Mass and everyone should eventually, he doesn't set a timeline on it, should eventually return to the 1970 post-Vatican II Mass. So overall, he's he's pretty strong in laying out a new direction.
0: Yeah, I tell you, this is a lot heavier than I thought, you know, hearing about it, thinking about this. I think some of the big things that I hear about why people want to have this Mass is that this liturgy, this pre-Vatican II liturgy, is dignified, whereas post-Vatican II, the liturgy, not so much. So what is a dignified liturgy, and how should Catholics assess their parish mass, its dignity, its reverence, all that?
1: Yes, I actually can have much sympathy for people who say that. I mean, can we say, again, without being judgmental, The implementation of the new mass since 1970 has not been perfect in all cases. You know, plenty of things were done that were silly or stupid or wrong or bizarre. Mm -hmm. And again, it happened for a reason. I would want to look at why did people do that? Why did they think they were doing the right thing? But, you know, I'll just name one example. People say, oh, after Vatican II, they celebrated mass with Jack Daniels what? And, what? and tortilla chips. And I said, oh, come no. on, stop attacking everything. By... And then somebody whom I respect wrote to me and said, yeah, I was there. It did happen. I have to tell you, though, anytime people trot out all of these horrors, I think to myself that for every one time I know of or hear of something, you know, stupid or undignified being done, mm-hmm. There must be another ten or another 100 cases where the problem is not, you know, misplaced creativity. The problem that I see is that the new mass sometimes is really dull, really rote, really perfunctory. We're just reading the creed uh, on autopilot that mm. doesn't feel like a joyful expression of our faith. And I don't know about your background, but maybe your experience is better in the African-American community. The priest is reading the Eucharistic prayer. And am I always paying attention to it? It's just kind of a rote, one guy reading a long thing, and I've heard it before. So in a general way, I would say a lot of people have done excellent work in making the new liturgy work, mm-hmm. but it's not easy to develop a whole culture where people live the rites. It's not easy, especially when you know the world's getting more secular and less religious, and we all bring that to the liturgy, to experience that Eucharistic prayer as something we are all celebrating, which really is life-changing because God is powerfully making death and resurrection present. and Jesus is powerfully changing me and the community. So I think all of the ways in which the Vatican II Mass is not yet everything that it can be and should be, That really feeds into people wanting to go elsewhere. So that's why I have so much sympathy and understanding for these people. Mm -hmm. But the changes Vatican II called for are so monumental that I think we're realizing to learn how to do the rights and to be people formed by the rights. Boy, it may take you know a century or two uh to do it
0: wow that's well in a century or two is nothing in the church <laughs> right that, that's like a blink exactly. of an eye right and when you say the new mass though there was something that i think about um and you tell me if my understanding is wrong here isn't the 1970 mass though more like the masses of the early church than because when i hear new yes. mass i could i imagine there's some people like yeah this newfangled mess and it's just some invention but isn't it more have more like the early masses of the early church. So like when we say new mass, we mean, you know, 1970. We don't mean the things that we see in this mass have no connection to our earliest roots, right, of practicing, of of liturgy. Could you talk about that, Father?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right, Gloria. Uh, The so-called New Mass of 1970, and that's already 51 years ago. So in (laughs) the Catholic Church, time moves slowly. 51 years is just a blink ago. It is more traditional. It is more like what Pope Gregory would have done in the late 6th century. Mm -hmm. You know, some, and here's the problem with the blogosphere. You get the impression if you go online that they invented it from scratch and they had some nefarious plot to just make things up and they didn't have scholarship and didn't know what they were doing. And worse yet, some people, and here I would challenge Cardinal Burke, who knows more about canon law than I'll ever know, but you know, he'll speak of the Gregorian rite as if there was one rite from Pope Gregory in the sixth century up until Vatican II When I think, you know, just just the facts of history show, when Pope Gregory celebrated Mass, it was in the vernacular. He used the same language for the Eucharistic prayers, the readings. He did the Eucharistic prayer out loud. He only distributed under two forms of bread and wine. They didn't yet have the prayers at the foot of the altar. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the long offertory prayers. I'm going on and on and getting into a lot of detail. They didn't have the last gospel All kinds of things in the 1962 Missile accumulated gradually more and more and more over the centuries. So that what Vatican II did it's actually sort of like in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's Last Judgment. Mm-hmm. They did a massive restoration where they cleared away all of the black soot and dirt from the you know past five centuries, so that if you go to the Sistine Chapel now, it is so light and so bright and it reads almost like a you know cartoon, it's so colorful. Mm. That's sort of what Vatican II did in restoring earlier traditions. So we've gone back to something more like what Pope Gregory did. Mm. Although, you know, we also adjusted to the modern right. times and we also used our own good judgment in creating new things, new Eucharistic prayers that are quite wonderful. But there is a sense in which The 1970 Mass after Vatican II is more traditional, even though it is kind of a break or a rupture with the 1962 old Missal, because it's really sort of retaining all of the core elements of 1962, but clearing away some of the other less important things that Vatican II said could be removed.
0: You know, Father, as I'm thinking about, you know, we had gone through the pandemic. We didn't have access to the Mass in the same way when they had to say that there'd be no public celebrations. I mean, Mass still went on, but the mode of participation of the lady changed. And I remember so many people saying, you know, I'll crawl through broken glass to go back to Mass. And here we are going back to Mass. And then the Holy Father issues this. And while we still have a Mass to go to, how can we help those who did celebrate participate in the latin mass feel welcome at the nova Sordo. what advice would you give here
1: yeah somebody said that as much as they're sympathetic when people are already hurting from the pandemic this is not the good time for pope francis to do this and I, you know i can see that in a sense though if this had to be done there was never going to be a good time to do it right. and it was going to going to hurt no matter when it came I think we're going to have to find places where people feel more welcomed at the post-Vatican II Mass because it will be enculturated in a way that does have not pre-Vatican II ways of doing things, but where the whole community experience is something that's very dignified and sacred and reserved and well-ordered and with some Latin chant, more or less. If it can be done well, it's not easy to do it well. Mm. And if people have translations, maybe if these people can even sing some of the Latin together, Vatican II provided for that, then maybe those people will gradually say, ah, the experience is a good one, the associations are good. Now that it's part of the whole, I can accept communion under both forms, or I can accept that woman Chanting the reading in beautiful elevated English, or maybe it's in in Latin. Mm-hmm. So I think we will have to have places where the flexibility of the Vatican II Mass allows for it to remain true to Vatican II, but more welcoming to people who want what they want. Even though all of that won't become the way for everyone, because there are places where the Vatican II Mass will have you know great African American gospel music yeah. or. A will have Latin American percussion, and then we can hope that the basic framework is the same so that people could attend other communities and say, it's not the way I do it, it's not who I am, but it's my church, it's my right. I can experience the joy of the Lord in the way that they do it. So I'm just starting to think about what will it look like as we try to welcome people back. But we always have to do it with understanding and respect and, and compassion.
0: Amen. And I hope one day we can get to a place where we realize we're bringing our gifts to the Mass to to worship God. You know, and let's be happy about that, that we're worshiping God and not so much. A friend of mine used to say, the danger of so many things is that, we love the jewels rather than the jewel maker. And (laughs) and so let us not be uh, caught up with the jewels uh, more so than loving the jewel maker. So anyway, just some thoughts there. Thank you so much for that guidance there, Father. I appreciate that. That's a lot to think about. And I think it is a way forward for us, even if it's going to take a century or so. (laughs) Amen to that. Thank you, Gloria. Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful
1: visiting with you. You're welcome.
0: I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. I'm trying to do my part to speak about these issues openly and faithfully, and you have a part in that too. If you're getting informed and inspired by our conversations, then other people probably will too. So please share an episode with a friend or family member. Help me get the good word out there into the parishes and schools and communities wherever you are. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And please leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.